Welcome to episode 26 of The Toth Zone, a podcast about how an obsession with music can give us a reason to live, but can also wreck our lives. I'm your host, James Toth. The number of responses to our most recent poll question might have beat our previous record, so I gotta give props to my sister Carrie for coming up with it. It seemed to inspire a lot of great conversation. Uh, The question was, what's your favorite flow album? An album you can listen to from front to back without skipping anything or getting distracted. I'm just going to list the albums you chose, and I'll comment on a few as we go. Miles Davis, Kind of Blue. I would add his masterpiece in a silent way. Neil Young, Tonight's the Night. I would add On the Beach, my favorite album of all time. Uh, David Crosby, If I Could Only Remember My Name. The first Mark Allman record. That's the Mark Allman with the K. I agree. Uh, Amy Mann, The Forgotten Arm. I've never heard this record. I do like Amy Mann, though. Uh, Lou Reed's Berlin. This was on my list, too. Dylan's Oh Mercy. The Glans, self-titled. Great record, Will. Uh, Jizza, Liquid Swords. This is a good choice, especially for the fact that, uh, in my opinion, it's rare for a rap album to be a flow album, because most of the skits that dot a lot of classic hip-hop records have little replay value, in my opinion. So that's a really good choice. Uh, Peaking Lights, 936. Rush, Moving Pictures. Yola Tango, There's a Riot Going On. Cat Power, Covers Album. Galaxy 500, Today and On Fire. Bright Black Morning Lights, Motion to Rejoin. Bill Orcutt and Chris Corsano's Made Out of Sound. That came out this year, by the way. Really great record. Uh, Sonny and Linda Sherrick, Black Woman. Guided by Voices, B-1000. Yes. And I would also add Alien Lanes. Uh, Both of these albums will always be like two very long songs that contain multiple parts to me. Great record. Uh, Rock Bottom by Robert Wyatt. Good one. Tracy Thorne's A Distant Shore. A Love Supreme. Talk Talk's Laughing Stock is the only album to get more than two votes. It got four, if you include one for me. Uh, Even though I think I'm one of the only people on Earth whose favorite Talk Talk album is Color of Spring. Uh, Talk Talk's Spirit of Eden got one vote. That's weird. I always considered Spirit of Eden the more popular of the two classic Talk Talk records. Maybe that opinion is changing. The Cure's Disintegration, absolutely. Absolutely. Hurricane Necklace by New Radiant Storm King. The Unforgettable Fire by U2. Aphex Twins Selected Ambient Works Volume 2. Now, I've heard this album a hundred times, and I can tell you from my experience falling asleep to it and waking up in absolute terror that it doesn't maintain a consistent mood, which is, of course, part of its charm. But uh, if anything, RJD almost sadistically confounds the notion of a flow album. Uh, For what it's worth, I love Saw 2, but I prefer Saw 1. Uh, Entertainment by Gang of Four. Eh, that's a bit front-loaded, No. Uh, Bastard Song by Superconductor. I'd never even heard this band until Ryan mentioned them, but I really love this record. Um, just heard it. Uh, features a pre-New Pornographers A.C. Newman, but it's way more fucked up and psychedelic than New Pornographers. Uh, I recommend that. Thanks, Ryan. Willie Nelson's Red-Headed Stranger. Great choice. Uh, yesterday's Wine, too, maybe. Uh, Hats by the Blue Nile. Another great choice and a great band. Uh, my sister Carrie, who suggested the poll question, names The Division Bell... Method Man's To Cal, and the self-titled album by Clutch. I don't think there's a bigger David Gilmore fan alive than my sister Carrie, but I, I, I share her love of The Division Bell. Okay, so my turn. I, actually, I don't, I don't want to cop out here, but I actually struggled with this one 
Not because I couldn't think of any, but because I realized that there are entire genres that sort of cast a spell like this for me and, and maintain the mood throughout. Like dub and death metal, to cite two very different examples. Uh, or genres with few surprises in terms of dynamics, maybe, arguably, though both death metal and dub uh, do offer many micro-surprises within the confines of their rigid parameters. And this is a large part of the appeal. Like, you're listening to a dub track and you go, whoa, is that a fucking pedal steel? You know, or you're listening to a death metal record and there's suddenly like bagpipes or a children's choir or something. But none of these things interrupt the flow somehow, which is maybe why death metal and dub as genres are pinnacles of human artistic achievement in my view. Uh, but okay, I'll play by the rules. Here, here's some records I think are great flow albums. Scott Walker's The Drift, uh, Silent Shout by The Knife, My Bloody Valentine's Loveless, self-titled Bobby Charles record, Kamakiriad by Donald Fagan and Gaucho by Steely Dan, Robert Wyatt's Comic Opera, Yank Crime by Drive Like Jehu, Leonard Cohen's I'm Your Man, Rhythm and Sound with the Artists, self-titled Relatively Clean Rivers, Fraternity of Moonwalkers by Tower Recordings, Don't Forget to Boogie by Tatsuzi Akiyama, and Fuck Y'all, Siamese Dream by Smashing Pumpkins. Do the kids still say don't at me? Don't at me. Also, not an official poll question here per se, but this poll question for me raises some new questions. Uh, like, has the rise of playlists and increasing dominance of mood-oriented algorithms made the notion of the flow album obsolete or unnecessary? Now, I mean, club DJs have obviously been creating the equivalent of flow albums for decades. But now I would guess that most listeners, especially younger listeners, are more likely to seek out after a hard day, uh, a chill-out playlist over, say, an album by Harold Budd. Is this good or bad? Or neutral? What does it mean for the album as a music delivery system, the record as a medium? Why even have a side one and a side two? I mean, LPs and cassettes have not been the format of choice for the majority of music fans for like 30 years. What's gained? What's lost? Again, not a poll question, just something to think about. Stay tuned to the end of the episode for a new poll question, and thanks as always to everyone who contributed to this one. This is actually always fun for me, and uh, I hope some of you carry these discussions over to your lives and your conversations with family and friends and coworkers and bandmates and such. Now, so far, season two of this podcast has dealt largely with DIY touring, but I thought today we could back up a bit, and I could tell you about how it all started for me. Uh, how I came to release my first record back in 1996, and what inspired me to do so. Now, long-time listeners to this podcast know I've been making music in some form for almost as long as I've been alive. Uh, but I view the practice of making up songs and the discipline of songwriting as separate endeavors, and not just because the latter sounds more serious and more intentional than the former. Some people are surprised to learn that I was actually a really late bloomer as a songwriter. In fact, I've often considered the possibility that part of my work ethic, uh, which resulted in a comically large discography, is due to me trying to make up for lost time somehow. Like, try to find a wooden wand review that doesn't use the word prolific. Now, while I was in plenty of bands and I, I wrote raps and riffs all through childhood and adolescence, I didn't even write what I would consider my first proper song until I was 19 years old. You see, I grew up playing metal 
and a little punk uh, with musicians from my hometown who also played metal and punk. So when it came time to jam with my new friends at college and someone called a jam in D minor, I was struck with this terrifying realization that I had no idea what they were talking about. This is because, like most of my headbanger and punk rock heroes, I learned to play guitar by reading tablature. Uh, For those who don't know, briefly, tablature is a numerical system and an alternative to reading standard musical notation. It's a shortcut, but it's a valuable one, especially if, uh, number one, you want to get playing as fast as possible, and two, you can't be bothered learning music theory since all you want to do is play Dead Kennedy songs. That said, I do wish I'd learned to read music when I was a kid. Uh, The way I learned to play guitar and the way people who write folk and country songs play guitar requires two almost entirely different skill sets. By the age of 15, I could play every Black Sabbath riff and half the riffs on Rain and Blood, but I couldn't play Kumbaya or She'll Be Coming Round the Mountain. But as I moved further from punk and metal and started looking to emulate my songwriting heroes like Neil Young and Leonard Cohen and Bob Dylan, the more I wanted to demystify the process of songwriting and try my hand at writing some of my own songs. So I taught myself the basic chords in the guitar's first position uh, and almost immediately began writing songs. Mark Boland said something once about how he can just play a C chord and then it's just a question of picking the right melody out of the air. It always sounds like humble bragging when I say this, but the reason I am lousy at practicing guitar is that I I seem to be incapable of picking up an instrument without writing a song. I'm not saying these are good songs, but it's just something that comes really easily to me, and it always has. I'm only going to dispense with the false humility here, because I am literally not good at anything else. I can barely make a tuna sandwich without somehow injuring myself. I'm a mediocre driver, a bad swimmer, bad at sports, can't cook, not especially handy, etc., etc., But a guitar for me is a means to an end, merely a tool for writing songs. Now, I'm not immune to the habit of discussing tone and tube amps and pedals, but I'm not a gear freak or a guitar nerd. I mean, if I had started writing songs on an organ instead of a guitar, I'd probably be playing organ today. But an acoustic guitar was much easier to fit in a dorm room. The first song I ever wrote was called Kissing Fish. It wasn't very good. But the third song I ever wrote was called Death Seat, and many years later, uh, when Michael Girard and I were going through my old demos to decide what to record for our album together, Michael just flipped over the song and demanded that I not only include it on the record we were making, but that I also change the name of the album to make it the title track. I guess you'd file that under First Thought, Best Thought. In 1996, I went to college, and I met cool people, and I got jobs at both the local record store and the college radio station, where I was soon made the so-called alternative director. I bought a 4-track, a Tascam 414, and I got to work. I called the project Golden Calves. I soon found sympathetic players at Purchase College, then called SUNY Purchase, where I attended school. Purchase had always been a hotbed of musical, social, and artistic activity. Founded by New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller in 1967, as, quote, the cultural gem of the SUNY system, Purchase was a small school with a reputation for being the artsiest and most progressive of the 13 universities in the SUNY system. The satirical comedy PCU was said to be based on Purchase. Notable alumni includes filmmaker Hal Hartley and one of my all-time favorite directors, Abel Ferrara, uh, actresses Edie Falco and Parker Posey, 
and actors Stanley Tucci, Ving Rhames, Josh Hartnett, and Passenger 57 himself, Wesley Snipes. Musician alumni from before or after my time at Purchase includes Daryl from Glassjaw, rapper Mace, and Mitski. Enrolled while I was a student were artists of future renown like musician-illustrator polymath Jeffrey Lewis, singer-songwriter Langhorn Slim, and noted noise queen Tova Olsen, all three very dear friends to this day, and uh, all of whom I will talk about in future episodes if and when we get back to the tour stories thing. I also attended classes with Regina Spector, Dan Deacon, Jay Zone, and members of Hopewell, some of whom were at the time playing in Mercury Rev, a band we all loved. Hopewell are amazing, too. Actor Michael Morona from The Adventures of Pete and Pete and Home Alone was a friend, as was award-winning choreographer and dancer Kyle Abraham. Though Purchase was a well-respected liberal arts school, with a heavy concentration in film, theater, and visual art, because it was a state school, tuition was affordable for me since I lived in New York. Almost all of the Golden Calves jams were recorded at The Cave, a performance space at Purchase College I co-ran with my roommate and friend Darren. The Cave was a dilapidated, leaky room in the basement of the Humanities Building. Somewhat problematically, it was just down the hall from campus police headquarters. The ceiling leaked and the roof often flooded. The walls were black and there were no windows. There was almost definitely asbestos. The room was a cold, dank graveyard of decrepit musical instruments, abandoned art projects, beer bottles, and other detritus. You probably could have made a good case for condemning it. I loved it and I began spending most of my time in that weird little airless room. The early days of the cave were glorious. We held an open mic event every Thursday night. Open mics at purchase during this time were not your usual, typical coffeehouse fare. Singers and musicians shared the stage with comedians, jugglers, dancers, noise bands, even lip-synkers. My various bands, which always had a rotating cast, used this very open and welcoming space to rehearse and try out our ideas in front of audiences. I recorded everything we did at the cave, which doubled as my practice space. And during the summer break that followed freshman year, I took the tapes back to my parents' house, and I began to create, using my Tascam 414, what would become the Golden Calves debut album, which was also my debut album. I edited down and then overdubbed vocals on the best improvisations we'd recorded at Purchase, and then I added some of my own acoustic tunes to sit alongside the flurry of group jams. In addition to a steady diet of Sonic Youth, Royal Trucks, and Flying Saucer Attack, my favorite band was the locally famous Tower Recordings, a band of slightly older girls and guys comprised of several Purchase alums. I had never heard anything like Tower Recordings, and I haven't since, and getting to see them play and even get to open for them around this time at places like The Cooler in New York City was a tremendous influence. Tower Recordings were my own private Velvet Underground, and I still place their album The Fraternity of Moonwalkers, which I mentioned earlier as an ideal flow album, in my top five of all time. Along with Jandek, The Gods, and The Shadow Ring, Tower Recordings were the band I most shamelessly wanted to emulate with Golden Calves. And this influence is embarrassingly super obvious if you listen. In my defense, I was 19 years old. As long as we're confessing, here's another one. I funded the pressing of the Golden Calves LP by ripping off my dad. See, my father had set me up with a meal plan at school, and had gotten around via art school junkie lore 
that if a student requested a meal plan refund within the first two weeks of a semester, the school would cut the student, and not the person who paid for the meal plan, a check for the difference, and the person who initially footed the bill would be none the wiser. I remember receiving and cashing a check for about $1,400. That was more money than I'd ever seen at the time, and I used that money to press the LP. I didn't eat lunch for an entire semester. I also had to work really hard to resist cashing the check and immediately taking a train into the city and going on a spending spree at Other Music or Kim's Underground, where I'd buy every LP and CD I wanted. But luckily, miraculously, good sense prevailed. Inspired by the pseudonyms used by bands I loved like Swell Maps and Tower Recordings, I created stage names for everyone who played on the record, and I even invented a few contributors for good measure to permanently confound future discographers. On the paper insert, I purposely misspelled my own last name, a decision that would later haunt me. I've since received songwriting credits on other people's records under this erroneous spelling, adding a phonetic E to my last name. I wonder where James Tothy's royalty checks go. Using the handy and invaluable Simple Machines Guide to Releasing Records, I sent the tape to be mastered at Aardvark and pressed at Acme. The internet as a ubiquitous constant in our lives was still a few years away, and the web, which I didn't even know how to use anyway, was, was located in the computer lab and only accessible at certain times. I mean, I was still writing my papers in college on a word processor, so most of the business of getting the record pressed was actually done over the phone. I can't really express in words the feeling of dropping a needle for the first time on a vinyl record and hearing my voice and my guitar wafting from the speakers. This is actually a thrill I've been lucky to experience dozens of times since, and while nothing beats that first time, it remains a thrill all the same. Look, you guys know by now, I'm a jaded son of a bitch. I can rant and rave about the injustices and inequities of the shitty music business all day if you'll let me. But the novelty of this has never worn off. To this day, whenever I get a test pressing of a record I've played on, and I hear my stupid voice or my ham-fisted ass guitar coming out of it. It feels good. And then I never listen to the record ever again, but whatever, that's a different story. Many of the songs included on the Golden Calves debut album were performed solo, but like I said, several were culled from the large improvised jams I orchestrated at the cave. I don't recognize half the names on the album's acknowledgements list, and I suspect many of those two were invented for some reason. The record was well-received by the hipsters, hippies, and druggy weirdos of purchase, and also somehow made its way to Thurston Moore, who praised the record and got us some gigs. Shortly after the LP release, Golden Calves became a real band, one with a membership that was more or less fixed, that played shows and even embarked on one ill-advised U.S. tour. Darren, Dave, and Tova, three Golden Calves mainstays and cave regulars, became official band members, and we decided the next release would be a group effort. I don't remember who came up with the idea of sharing a three-way split LP with Thurston Moore and a Michigan-based noise band we loved called Dr. Gretchen Musical Weightlifting Program, which featured a pre-Wolf Eyes insane Johnny Olson, he of American Tapes, and social media fame. We recorded our portion and had our friend Miles Carr silkscreen the covers using an original image designed and provided by our other good friend Eric Longobardi. We all spent several late nights at the cave, pasting covers together and stuffing LP jackets. Our concept of distribution was to send a bunch of copies to a few distros I'd worked with on the previous Golden Calves LP, 
and also walking around New York City with backpacks full of LPs, selling them to every record store we could. We got rid of most of them that way, actually, but that's almost definitely thanks to Thurston's involvement. We got reviewed in some of our favorite zines, like Muckraker, which, by the way, is a very unsung publication that provided a nexus, as well as something of a directory for the entire American and UK noise and improv underground at the time. Muckraker founder and editor Patrick Marley deserves a lot more credit than he gets for connecting dots that might not have ever been introduced in the pre-internet time. If you were paying attention to freak folk, harsh noise, free improv, or outsider avant-garde any time after 1993 or so, I can almost guarantee you that many of those roads lead back to Muckraker. Here's to you, Patrick Marley. In hindsight, I think the noise scene embraced Golden Calves and reacted so positively to what we were doing because in our own naive, perhaps inadvertent way, we were subverting what was becoming, in spite of itself, a rigid paradigm. Touring with noise bands and moving in experimental circles while playing proper songs on acoustic instruments is, ironically, what made us weird and what made us stand out, even though there was precedent for this. Six Organs of Admittance and Tower Recordings and Charlambities were all doing this before we did. Golden Calves existed for several years and then petered out. My next band was a little different, though formed under the same collective notion as Golden Calves. The band was called The Blood Group, and the idea was to blend the sort of hazy stoner jangle of Mazzy Star with the impish pop and intrepid production work of Saint Etienne. But it was the early aughts, and we had a female lead vocalist and drum machines, and we wrote songs in minor keys, so of course most of the critics compared us to Portishead. Whatever, I like Portishead, but they weren't really an influence. I cold-called a label we liked on the phone, and I was shocked to get an offer from them almost immediately to release our records. This would be the first contract I ever signed. The Blood Group made an EP and a full-length, both of which included many of our purchased college friends as guests, as well as NASA, who longtime Toth Zone listeners will know as my childhood best friend Paul. I still think these are good records, uh, even if they sound just a tad dated now. Then, The Blood Group regrouped. In the tradition of our heroes, we were determined not to repeat ourselves. So we began conceiving the third release as an album of acoustic jams, jettisoning the drum machines and synthesizers and breaking very much with the sound for which we'd become known. We stripped the band down to four members and we got to work recording an album, Dead of Night, we called it. I was really happy with it, but the label was not. They were trying to sell us as a trip-hop group, and this record sounded more like a private press folk record, so they didn't really know what to do with it. When the label asked me to change some fundamental things about the record, I refused. We were sued for breach of contract for a million dollars. I know that sounds crazy, but I imagine that figure was meant to scare us, which it did. We utilized the services of a famous New York entertainment lawyer to get us out of the contract. Now, prior to this experience, I probably put entertainment lawyer just a rung or two above prison snitch on the respectability ladder. But Quinn was awesome. Her brilliant strategy was to simply Bill Clinton the label until they cried for mercy, asking an avalanche of excruciatingly tedious questions in an effort to release us from our hastily signed contract. So the word's not limited to the territory here, she would say. What's the definition of limited here? It worked. The label ultimately and correctly decided we weren't worth the trouble, and they dropped the suit against us but I came away from this experience a little more jaded, albeit wiser. 
Fortunately, I think, it wasn't enough to discourage me. Unfortunately, it wasn't enough to teach me an important lesson about actually reading contracts and also having a professional read them first. Nor did it prevent me from making almost identical mistakes years later. And identical mistakes a few years after that. But those, dear listeners, are tales for another time. Thank you for listening. Before I sign off, I want to give y'all a new poll question to think about. I've been getting some great suggestions for poll questions from listeners, and at this rate, I may not have to even come up with any more on my own, which is great. Uh, This new one comes from listener John Salaturo. What is an album you did not like or even hated, only to come back to it years later and find that it is absolutely kick-ass incredible? John goes on to say, For the purposes of the poll question, it might be more interesting to ignore the albums that simply took a few listens to click. It would be more interested if it were an artist you, you generally liked a lot, but then this one album came out and you just didn't care for it and lost interest, only to have some holy smokes moment years later. I love it. Thanks, John. That's all for now. You can find me on Twitter at JimmyJackToth and on Patreon at patreon.com slash thetothzone. Thank you to all my new patrons. Uh, if you're not already a patron, please do consider pledging. Tiers begin at only $5 a month and earn you lots of cool stuff, including early access to each new episode of The Toth Zone. You can also reach me at thetothzone at outlook.com. Thanks again for sticking around. I hope you're all doing great and feeling fine. As for me, I'm recording this on April 21st, and it is snowing here. God help me. See you next episode. Till then, this is The Toast Zone.